Our Father Abraham, Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith, by Marvin R. Wilson. William B. Eerdmans Publishing Company, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Center for Judaic Christian Studies, Dayton, Ohio. Preface. The roots of Christianity run deep into Hebrew soil. Though the Hebrew heritage of the church is rich and extensive, many Christians are regrettably uninformed about it. Most of it has been treated either passively and superficially, or more often, it has simply been left unexplored. Christian seminaries, colleges, and other educational institutions have been largely responsible for the slack. Many have not produced professional clergy, teachers, and lay leaders with a well-rounded, balanced education. Christian educators have frequently stressed the origins, impact, and contributions of Western civilization on the church and modern society. But study of both the Hebrew world and of the East Mediterranean and the modern Jewish community of the diaspora has often been superficial or deemed optional or even irrelevant. Consequently, the crop of our knowledge about Hebrew heritage and Christian-Jewish relations that we continue to reap within the church is quite lean. Time has come for the church to have a renewed biblical vision. It has sown the seeds of neglect long enough. Heritage implies something which has been conveyed or handed down from generation to generation. It means the transference of a legacy. If it is to be our Judeo-Christian heritage, it is important to understand what our predecessors in the faith have delivered to us. Unfortunately, a few Christians have had the tools and encouragement to familiarize themselves with this vast heritage. Indeed, currently, there is a notable lack of textbooks and other study materials suitable for classroom use written by Christians who are, act, who are active in the field of Jewish studies and Christian-Jewish relations. This volume is an attempt to help bridge this educational gap. Our Father Abraham is an introduction to the world of Hebrew thought. It is intended primarily for Christians, but it is hoped that Jews may benefit from much of this book as well. I have sought to write with a wide readership in mind. The primary objective of this volume, however, is to serve as a text for Christian seminarians and collegians, clergy and, Christ and church leaders, and laypersons who are serious students of scripture, theology, and history. Although this work is a biblical, historical, and cultural study, the reader will quickly will click will click will quickly find out that it is concerned with more than exploring the past. Learning to think Hebraically is only the start. These pages also have a contemporary application. They are a call for Christians to re-examine their Jewish roots so as to affect a more authentically biblical lifestyle. This priceless legacy of the Jewish people must be made useful. It must affect not only Christian theory, but also experience. This quest for Jewish roots may be unsettling to some. We all tend to be creatures of habit. No one likes to have long-held viewpoints challenged or established practices questioned. Change is often disturbing. In this connection, the exact relation between Christianity and Judaism is, in many ways, complex. Admittedly, many areas lack clear and definitive answers. Nevertheless, the goal of this investigation is to strengthen the church's understanding of its foundations through both thought and action. Our concern is to demonstrate why the church cannot afford to be passive about the Jewish experience in history, whether ancient or modern. The title of this work, Our Father Abraham, is a biblical expression. See Luke 173, John 853, Acts 7-2, etc., that epitomizes the deep spiritual link every Christian has with the Jewish people. 
As we will point out particularly in the first two chapters, Gentile Christians are grafted by faith into Israel. Romans 11, 17-24 And through this faith commitment come to know Israel's father as their father too. Elsewhere, Paul says that those who believe are children of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7 Indeed, through faith, Abraham is the father of us all. Romans 4:16. Although Abraham himself is not the principal focus of this volume, the title Our Father Abraham describes its main thrust, an exposition on what it means for today's church to be a part of Abraham's spiritual family. Galatians 3:29. In large measure, this volume reflects my own spiritual pilgrimage. My strong impression is, however, that I am not alone in this regard. Many of the issues and emphases that I have chosen to include are those which I wish had been part of my own formal education as a Christian, but were not. Yet today, as a result of my own quest, they have come to be greatly valued. Thus, this work does not pretend to, be, to present a comprehensive treatment of the Jewish roots of Christianity, much less a standard systematic text on basic Judaism. Rather, it deals with some of the more relevant aspects of Hebrew heritage bearing on the life of the church. Not every topic dealt with will be equally valuable for, or directly applicable to, all readers. The Christian community is diverse. Gifts and abilities differ from person to person, and each comes to this subject area from a different starting point. My overall aim, however, is to challenge all readers to a deeper appreciation of our Hebrew heritage. In broad outline, this book reflects a variety of emphases. The opening chapters develop an historical perspective on the Jewish origin of the church and the centuries of de-Judaization to follow. Next, we set forth the importance and nature of Hebrew heritage and some of the negative consequences that have resulted from the church being severed from its Jewish roots. Then, we consider several major themes by which today's church can directly benefit from a study of Hebrew heritage. The book concludes with a discussion of some of the practical ways the church may become more attuned to the Hebraic mindset of Scripture. In more specific detail, we have implemented the above emphases by dividing the manuscript into five sections, five main sections. Part 1 deals with what it means for Gentiles to be spiritually Semites, grafted into and supported by Israel, Romans 11. Here, we also deal with certain influences or problems such as Hel Hellenism, Judaizing, Paul and the Law, and what is encompassed in this work by the term Hebrew or Jewish heritage. Part 2 is mainly diachronic in approach. It focuses on Christian-Jewish relations throughout 2,000 years of history. Here we, we trace the Jewish beginnings of the church and the various factors which led to its split from the synagogue. We also trace the history of contempt between church and synagogue, showing how the de-Judaization of the church led to anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. In part three, we seek to establish the importance of the Old Testament and other early Jewish sources as foundational or for understanding the background and teachings of the New Testament. Furthermore, some of the more important characteristics of Hebrew thought are set forth in order to help the reader get inside the Jewish mindset of the biblical authors. This section concludes with an examination of three main areas where the church has deviated from its Jewish roots and found its theology distorted in the process. In each case, a biblical, Hebraic, corrective is offered so as to bring the church back into theological balance. Part 4 contains a number of selected studies where Hebrew heritage heavily influences the church. Here we treat at considerable length teaching on marriage and the family 
in the concept of learning, we also include a chapter on Passover to provide the Jewish background to the Last Supper, and a fourth chapter which stresses the ongoing relevance of the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people to Christians today. Part 5 is a practical chapter. It explores a number of channels which Christians can follow with profit to become more firmly attached to their Jewish roots. It also explains how Christians can reach out and build productive relations with today's Jewish community. Several features enhance the usability of this book as a text. As an introductory, as an introductory study for Christians of various denominational and educational backgrounds, we have sought to define or translate virtually all Hebrew terms and to explain all technical vocabulary. In addition, the book is closely outlined, allowing the student to follow easily the flow of discussion and to note points of major transition. Furthermore, there are study and discussion questions at the end of each chapter. These questions draw the reader back to review important points developed in the chapter and serve as an appropriate examination questions for those wishing to use this material for testing purposes. The questions may also be utilized by interfaith dialogue groups for preparatory homework and as a catalyst for in-group discussion. The various indexes and selective bibliography found at the end of the book will assist students desiring to do additional research and personal study. For several decades, the subject of this volume has been a particular interest of mine in regard to research, teaching, and publication. Portions of Our Father Abraham are based on previous articles I have written. The publications which bear on certain chapters of this manuscript are as follows. Chapter 2, Judaizers, in Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Chapter 7, Antisemitism. Chapter 8, The Shema, in International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Hebrew Thought, Chapter 10, Hebrew Thought in the Life of the Church, in the Living and Active Word of God. Chapter 12, Passover, in International Study Bible Encyclopedia. Chapter 13, Real Estate, Theology, Zionism, and Biblical Claims, in Christianity in the Arab-Israeli Conflict, the Evangelical Roundtable. Chapter 14, the Jewish Concept of Learning, a Christian Appreciation, Christian Scholars Review. Furthermore, unless otherwise noted, all biblical quotations throughout this volume are taken from the New International Ver Version. This manuscript would not have been a reality without the influence, encouragement, and help of many along the way. Early in my career, two Jewish scholars began to have a very significant impact on my thinking. They planted the seed from which this book eventually grew. First, my graduate school mentor, Cyrus Gordon, former chairman of the Department of Mediterranean Studies at Brandeis University, imparted to me a profound love for the Hebrew Bible and its impact upon the world. Second, over the years, the writings of the late Abraham Joshua Heschel have deeply stimulated my appreciation of the relation of Judaism to Christianity. Both of these giants lit a fire within me during the 1960s, which has never gone out. I owe a special word of thanks to my good friend, Dwight Pryor, president of the Center for Judeo Judaic Christian Studies, co-publisher of this volume. Dwight's persistent vision and strong encouragement were responsible for getting this project officially launched. I am most grateful for the helpfulness of the center's office staff, especially Georgia Clifton, Robert Morris, and David Wharton, each of whom read significant portions of the manuscript in its earliest stage and offered many useful comments throughout. Over the past decade or more, a number of knowledgeable and precious friends have intimately familiar, each intimately familiar with the land of the Bible and its people and culture have personally provided input into this book through their expertise in such areas as Hebraica, Bibliography, 
Jewish history, modern Israel, and Christian-Jewish relations. Accordingly, I wish to acknowledge with gratitude my debt to the following scholars from the Jerusalem School for Study of the Synoptic Gospels. The director, David Biven, Robert Lindsay, Halvor Ronning, Miriam Ronning, and Bradford Young. It is also fitting that I recognize three others, all residents of Jerusalem, who have in various yet important ways encouraged the writing of this book. The late G. Douglas Young, founder and longtime president of the Institute of Holy Land Studies, Clarence Wagner, president of Bridges for Peace, and James Monson, biblical geographer and historian. Furthermore, I am grateful for the impetus and insights provided towards the accomplishing of this work by several other kind friends, each a recognized specialist in one or more subject areas dealt with in this manuscript. These include Roy Blizzard Jr., President of Yavo Incorporated, Austin, Texas, Frank Eichler, President of Shalom International, Costa Mesa, California, Rabbi Yeko Eckstein, President of the Holy Land Fellowship of Christians and Jews, Chicago, Illinois, and Sonia Schreiber Weitz, founder and co-director of the Holocaust Center, Jewish Federation of the North Shore, Peabody, Massachusetts. One particular scholar teacher, however, I must single out, Rabbi A. James Rudin, National Interreligious Affairs Director, the American Jewish Community, New York, New York has greatly enlarged my understanding of Judaism and the Jewish people. With this cherished and esteemed friend, I have had the rare privilege of co-editing three volumes on Christian-Jewish relations between 1978 and 1987. Few have contributed as much as Jim Rudin, a tireless pioneer and educator in the world of interfaith dialogue. I and numerous other Christians respect his ability to communicate the heart of the Jewish experience with clarity, sensitivity, and warmth. Jim Rudin has made an indelible mark upon my thinking. With kind thanks, I also wish to recognize the following institutions whose libraries provided me access for research and writing. First, my own institution, Gordon College, Wenham, Massachusetts. Also, the American Jewish Committee, New York, New York. Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Harvard Divinity School, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Tyndale House, Cambridge, England, and Cambridge University, Cambridge, England. My deep gratitude also goes to Gordon College, the United College of Gordon and Barrington, where I continue to enjoy the privilege of teaching the Jewish scriptures, Judaism, and classical Hebrew. For a period of several years, Gordon College tangibly encouraged the research and writing of this volume with grants through its faculty development program. Also, I am very thankful to the same institution for providing me a sabbatical leave spring term 1987. The time was profitably spent in Cambridge, England, where I completed the first draft of this manuscript. I am indebted in a special way to my former and present Gordon students however. Through class lectures and discussions, especially those held in my modern Jewish culture course, Gordon students have given me a considerable feedback on how much of the material touched upon this book. It is primarily because of the changes I have witnessed in these and other students that I am more firmly convinced than ever in the value of Christian study of Hebrew heritage and the importance of Christian Jewish relations. Last, but far from least in importance, I am most grateful for the skill and support of several other key individuals directly involved in this project. My faculty colleague, William Bueller, read several lengthy portions of the manuscript and made valuable comments. My capable, my capable teaching assistant, Ann Droppers, was responsible for the tedious task of indexing. Jane Dunphy, Assistant Director of Academic Computer Services at Gordon College provided valuable assistance at several important places. Mary Jasper Kate, 
deserves a special word of deep appreciation on my part. Mary's skill on the word processor, her keen editorial advice, and her sensitive and faithful support throughout have been major factors in the accomplishment of this work. I am also deeply indebted to Gary Lee, editor at William B. Airdman's Publishing Company. In a host of helpful ways, Gary adeptly and enthusiastically moved this publication on to completion. This manuscript goes forth with hope that it will prove instrumental in pointing Christians of every denomination and ethnic background to the importance and richness of their Hebrew heritage. But more than this, my deepest desire is to convey through these pages an attitude, not merely information, for Jewish Christ, for Christian-Jewish relations that are rooted today in a new sense of appreciation and trust between both communities will have even greater potential for growth tomorrow. Marvin R. Wilson, Wenham, Massachusetts. Chapter 1. The Root and Branches Consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Romans 11, 18b. Since their beginning, the people of God have stressed the importance of understanding their uniqueness, of knowing from whom they have come. Roots were always important, for Israel's faith was deeply embedded in history. Thus, knowledge of beginnings is central to biblical thought. The Old Testament opens with the book of Genesis, which in Hebrew is entitled Bereshit, in the beginning, or by way of beginning. This foundational source contains many ge genealogical tables that fix the beginnings of the Jewish people within a specific ancient Near Eastern setting. Likewise, the New Testament begins with the Gospel of Matthew tracing the line of Jesus. Matthew introduces his account with these words, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 1 1. To be cognizant of one's past was essential for establishing confidence about the future. Look to Abraham, your father. God's sovereign plan in history was to establish his covenant through a man called Abraham, or Abram, as he originally was known. Abraham was a Semite, a descendant of Noah's son Shem, Genesis 11, 10-32. The patriarch Abraham was the first person in the Bible to be called a Hebrew, Genesis 14:13. All Jews traced their ancestry to Abraham as father of the Hebrew nation. Accordingly, the Lord proclaimed through this prophet, through his prophet, "Look to the rock from which you were cut. Look to Abraham, your father." Isaiah 51:1-2. Genesis 12 records the call of Abraham. God told him that his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. Verse 7, 13, 15, 17, 8. And that he would have numerous descendants. God also promised Abraham all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 12, 3. In the, in the New Testament, Peter's speech to his fellow Jews gathered near the temple indicates that they, as physical descendants of Abraham, are heirs of this promised blessing. Acts 3.25. But the New Testament also indicates that Gentile believers, those who are spiritual rather than lineal descendants of Abraham, likewise share in this Abrahamic kinship. Galatians 3.8. Indeed, all Christians find their origin in Abraham, the Hebrew. For as Paul states, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Galatians 3.29. The biblical phrase, Our Father Abraham, thus expresses the family relationship that every person of faith has with the man of faith. The New Testament writers argue that those who display Abraham's faith and deeds are Abraham's true offspring. John 8, 31-41 James reminds his readers that Abraham, as father of the faithful, is called God's friend. Furthermore, James links all Christians to his exemplary patriarch by speaking of him as our ancestor Abraham, a man whose faith was complete by what he did. 
Indeed, the New Testament emphasizes that before Abraham was circumcised, he believed God and acted upon that belief. Romans 4, 9-12 In sum, according to the book of Hebrews, Abraham's faithful obedience from the moment God called him serves as an inspiring witness to the church that new people of God both rooted in Abraham and numbered among his children. The question of origins is a question of roots. Since the American public became obsessed with a, movie, with a moving television documentary called Roots a number of years ago, many people have been more conscious about their own roots. Considerable interest in tracing family, ethnic, and national ties has resulted in a recent flood of literature on this subject. At the same time, however, many Christians seem to have little knowledge about their biblical roots. They have never really penetrated the inner world of biblical thought. Christians can converse intelligently about the latest automobiles, fashions, music, and sports, but too few give evidence of a deep understanding of their spiritual heritage. At best, their grounding in biblical soil is both shallow and shaky. Hence, they usually embrace an uncritical conformity to the prevailing spirit of today's world. As children of Abraham, Christians should be asking, what does it mean to claim spiritual kinship with Abraham and the Jewish people? God's people are called to be different from the world through the renewing of the mind, Romans 12.2. Every Christian must seriously heed Paul's warning, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Thus, a Christian mind is one in the process of being renewed according to divinely revealed through thought patterns and values. A Christian's frame of reference must be constructed of sound building blocks derived from Scripture, but God's people can scarcely be expected to heed Paul's admonition to work out their salvation. Philippians 2.12, within the biblical frame of reference unless they know that frame, how that frame is constructed. How, do, how does today's Christian learn to think and approach life as Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets did, and as Jesus, Paul, and the apostles did? This knowledge comes only by uncovering the overarching mindset that the writers of Scripture reflect. We must enter their world and become conversant with their culture. We too must look to Abraham our father. Athens or Jerusalem? What is the inner world of biblical thought? What is the cultural mindset of the authors of Holy Writ? Are we to understand the Bible chiefly through the eyes of Hellenism, Greek thought and culture, or through the eyes of Judaism? Hebrew thought and culture. Obviously, the last question focuses on the New Testament. Most scholars affirm an essentially strong Jewish background to gospel studies and to the life and teachings of Jesus. But scholars debate widely the background of the writings of Paul, apostle to the Gentiles, Romans 11.13. Some, such as the late Jewish scholar Samuel Sanmel, stressed the importance of Hellenism in grasping the key to Pauline thought. While recognizing Hellenistic elements in Paul, however, W.D. Davies views the apostle differently. In his monumental work, Paul in Rabbinic Judaism, Davies argues that Paul must be understood as one who belonged to the mainstream of first century Rabbinic Judaism and that he was thus primarily governed both in life and thought by Pharisaic concepts. In his widely discussed volume, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, E. P. Sanders finds yet a different clue for interpreting Paul. Sanders calls for a radical separation of Judaism from Pauline Christianity, considering the latter as a distinct religion in opposition to Judaism. In short, in Sanders' view, Paul converted to Christianity from Judaism. From yet another angle, primarily that of linguistics, James Barr has added further stimulus to the Athens versus Jerusalem discussion. In a substantive and controversial volume, The Semantics of Biblical Language, Barr rejects the idea that the basic characteristics of a culture, 
Greek, or Hebrew are traceable through the words, grammar, and syntax of the language of that culture. He challenges the approach of a number of works in this field, including Thorleif Bowman, Hebrew Thought Compared with Greek, and widely acclaimed multi-volume work edited by Gerhard Kittel and Gerhard Friedrich, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Barr maintains that words cannot express concepts and that language and mentality cannot be easily correlated. Accordingly, he downplays the value of lexicons and theological dictionaries. In short, Barr believes it is questionable, if not precarious, to make distinctions between Greek and Hebrew views of life. The world of biblical scholarship owes a great debt to Barr for the many useful insights he has articulated. These focus particularly on the use of linguistic methods such as etymologizing. Barr correctly observes that the meaning of a root is not necessarily part of the meaning of a derived form. Also, welcome is his emphasis on the laws of language, contextual analysis, and the study of the larger linguistic complex. But Barr's position fails to be fully convincing. By downplaying any distinction between Greek and Hebrew manners of thinking, Barr does not take into adequate consideration such nonverbal aspects as the historical, cultural, and social-physiological setting from which the respective thought derives. Furthermore, he gives the impression that one may translate from one language to another without any major loss. This is not necessarily the case, however, for words have a particular cultural and historical development within their own language. For example, while it would be normal to expect that the Hebraic idea behind the Greek term nomos, law, would be readily communicated to the minds of Jewish readers, i.e., they would take the term in the sense of Torah, teaching, the same, the same word, nomos, may be initially understood differently, i.e., in its customary Hellenistic sense, by Greek readers. Some of the dimensions of this broader question of the contrast of Greek and Hebrew thought raised by Barr will be discussed further in later chapters. In reference to the above discussion, it must be recognized that some scholars have displayed a tendency to overemphasize the opposition between Athens and Jerusalem, particularly when it comes to Paul's writings, which evince a strong continuity with Judaism as well as a discontinuity. We must be careful to define what is meant by discontinuity here. One must certainly recognize that Paul used Greek to aid communication, e.g. his extensive use of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he employed certain stylistic devices, e.g. Greek rhetorical forms and phrases, so as to present material in a manner the audience would understand. But some, would cl but some claim that discontinuity extends to the source of Paul's religious thought in pagan Hellenistic beliefs. However, scholars have marshaled considerable material to oppose the popular position that early Christianity was a synchronistic faith which borrowed its essential beliefs from Hellenistic philosophy or religion. Indeed, today convincing evidence challenges the earlier widespread belief that Paul's writings bear the distinctive mark of Platonism. In sum, Contemporary Christians have strong reasons to question any approach to Paul which finds the primary roots of his theology in Hellenism, Gnosticism, or mystery religions. As we will develop in greater detail in the next chapter, Paul upheld the goodness of the Jewish tradition of Torah. Indeed, Paul came to understand the Christian life as patterned after that of Judaism. It was for him not the antithesis but the full flowering of that faith. This meant that Paul, diaspora Jew that he was, a deep rooting in the Hebrew scriptures and rabbinic thought. Paul was proud of being a Jew, 2 Corinthians 11.22.
in his word a Hebrew of Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, Philippians three five. As in the case of ancient Israel, so with Paul, God channeled his word his word thought by Hebrew minds, even when their lips spoke and their hands wrote Greek. If one is to interpret the teaching of Paul, and indeed all of Scripture correctly, one must understand his background and the context in which he wrote. Christer Stendhal has widely observed that the task of biblical studies, even of biblical theology, is to describe, to relive, and relate in terms of presuppositions of the period of the texts, what, what they meant to their authors and their contemporaries. Paul wrote in Greek, the lingua franca of his day, but his inner world of the spirit reflects primarily his Hebrew heritage, fed from sources which originally flowed from Jerusalem. So at the core, Paul's theology was essentially Hebraic, albeit in his letters dressed in Greek words. This was the spiritual mindset of Paul, the Jewish scholar of Tarsus. Accordingly, the great Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel has correctly observed that geographically and historically Jerusalem and Athens, the age of the prophets and the age of Pericles are not too far removed from each other. Spiritually, they are worlds apart. Let us return then to the original question, Athens or Jerusalem? Not simply for the writings of Paul, but for the entire scriptures. The primary cultural context is that of the Semitic world of the Hebrew people. Consequently, the author of God's word, virtually every one of them a Jew, have a profoundly Hebraic perspective on life and the world. If we are to consider, if we, if we are to interpret the Bible correctly, we must become attuned to this Hebraic setting in the ancient Near East. Thus, we must look primarily not to Athens, but to Jerusalem for the biblical view of reality. For the prophets and apostles produced a book that is without question Hebraic in composition and orientation. Succinctly stated, the Old Testament is the foundation for the New. The message of the New Testament is in the Hebrew tradition as against the Greek tradition. Our tutors to Christ are Moses and the prophets, and not Plato and the academies. The implications of this context for developing a Christian mind are immense. We are driven to realize that the theological vocabulary and linguistic idioms behind much of the Greek New Testament are Hebraic to the very core. David Noel Freeman affirms the Hebraic foundation of the New Testament thought. The thought pattern of biblical religion was firmly fixed in the Hebrew language by long centuries of usage. The language of biblical religion is Hebrew, as the Dead Sea Scrolls have shown, not only for the sectarian Judaism of the first century BC, but also for New Testament Christianity of first century AD. The Hebraic origins of Christianity find strong support in the witness of the New Testament itself. Paul states that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, Ephesians 3, 6b. Hence, Gentiles have a new history. Israel's history is now their history. In writing to the predominantly Gentile churches of Corinth, Paul states that the ancient Israelites were the forebears of the Corinthians. Our forefathers were all were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. 1 Corinthians 10.1 In the early church, therefore, Jew and Gentile claimed a common spiritual ancestry with the Hebrews of old. The World of the Bible The biblical scholar and theologian G. A. F. Knight has observed that if God chose Israel, then he also chose to use the Hebrew language. If we accept the obvious fact, then we must proceed to accept more. The Hebrews had their own peculiar manner of thinking about most things in heaven and earth. Now we agree generally with this statement, but would like to emphasize the word most, 
That is, Hebrews did have a particular or separate approach to life in most areas, but not in every area. The Hebrews, though called to live distinct lives apart from the rest of the world, still were very much part of the world. They were joint partakers of the human experience. As such, Hebrews shared many of the institutions, cultural practices, and practical everyday patterns of life and wisdom that were common to other ancient peoples. In sum, the Hebrews lived, moved about, and participated within the same East Mediterranean cultural continuum as their neighbors. Several brief examples are useful to note. The Egyptians practiced circumcision before the Hebrews began to employ this rite. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament reveals some form of literary interdependence with the same genre of poetry in Egypt and Mesopotamia. The Canaanites offered animal sacrifices in the Promised Land even before God instituted this priestly ritual under Moses. The literary structure of the Mosaic Law Code, in particular, the book of Deuteronomy, reflects the direct influence of the suzerain treaty formulas of the Hittites, Israel's neighbor to the north. The Hebrews used a Phoenician architect, Horam, or Hiram, of Tyre, to design the Temple of Solomon, 1 Kings 7.13. Canaanite linguistic material from Ugarit is vital to our understanding of many psalms. In the New Testament, we observe that Paul shows familiarity with non-Jewish sources. In Athens, he debates the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who appear to hear him gladly up to his discussion of the resurrection. Acts 17, 16-33. In Titus 1.12, Paul cites... Epimendes, a pagan Cretan poet. These examples are representative in showing that cross-cultural influence or borrowing was taking place on a number of different levels among several peoples of the ancient world. The Hebrews were part of this open environment of cultural sharing. But in this mat matter of borrowing, the Hebrews did differ from their neighbors in one significant area. The origin of their religion was rooted in divine revelation rather than pagan sources. Dependence upon or borrowing from another people did not necessarily mean agreement. The intention behind the borrowing or use of material from another people was crucial. There is a profound difference between the use of Aaron's golden calf, an idea borrowed from the Egyptians, and the use of certain names of the month on the Hebrew's calendar, an obvious borrowing from the Babylonians. Furthermore, the Hebrews' borrowing was not in a kind of acculturation or syncretism which derived from some fortuitous, indiscriminate cross-fertilization of ideas. Rather, when they did engage in cross-cultural interchange, the practices and concepts which they borrowed were characteristically cast in a different mold. This mold often resulted in the shattering of pagan myths, as in Psalm 68.4, where David declares that, that it is the God of Israel, not Baal, as in Canaanite mythology, who rides on the clouds. Thus, the Hebrews placed all thought in every aspect of life, wherever derived, in and under the full theistic concept of covenant responsibility, baptized, if it were, into Yahwehistic faith. Perhaps in a similar way, we may understand Paul's use of oral traditions and familiar rabbinic concepts from his day, along with the Hebrew scriptures, which were baptized unto Christ. In the preceding paragraphs, we have sought to show that the world of the Bible embraced a variety of cultures and peoples. The Greek, Roman, Canaanite, Mesopotamian, and Egyptian cultural backgrounds are important in understanding certain aspects of the biblical text. By the findings of archaeology, we know that throughout hundreds of years of biblical history, Jews lived within or rubbed shoulders with many of these civilizations. Since the Bible, in a magnificent and yet mysterious way, is God's voice, divinely inspired,
In human words, culturally conditioned language, it is absolutely essential to understand the various peoples and religions of the biblical world. Without entering the Mesopotamian world of the patriarchs, the Egyptian world of the Exodus, the Babylonian world of Daniel, and the Persian world of Esther, to name but a few, knowledge of the commonalities as well as the differences which the Hebrews experienced in relation to their neighbors, each so vital to the process of biblical interpretation, will be lost. Nevertheless, we must still return to what we emphasize at the beginning of this section. For with all these ancient cultures affecting the history of God's chosen people, one should never forget that the writers of the scripture were Jews, who did have their own peculiar manner of thinking, because they were an intimate part of the religious world of Israel, they reflected primarily and fundamentally a Hebraic way of looking at life. Though their larger environment was often pagan, the Hebrews, as bearers of God's Torah to the world, stood in distinct contrast to their neighbors. As a community of faith responsible to their Redeemer, who had summoned them to a life of holiness set apart unto him, their lifestyle was expected to be different from the polytheistic culture around them. In style of dress, in eating habits, in a manner of worship, and in ethical values, the Hebrews were God's treasured possession, a living kingdom of priests. S. Exodus 19, 5-6 Herein lies the uniqueness of the Israelite faith. Their understanding of God and His relation to their lives and to history as a whole, who gave meaning to, to sustain them amidst an often hostile environment. The significance of this fact has been accurately summed up in these words. The Hebrews were located geographically in the ancient Middle East, and during most of their long history were under the sovereignty of powers greater than themselves. Yet remarkably, they were the only one of those peoples to succeed in maintaining themselves through the centuries as a culture. It was primarily their unique religion which sustained them, making them capable of withstanding those forces of, of, of absorption and disintegration which would have removed them as a people from the stage of history. The Olive Root and Branches Thus far, we have emphasized this main point. The Bible reflects a view of reality which is essentially Hebraic. Indeed, for the earliest church to think Christianly was to think Hebraically. It should not be surprising that the understructure and matrix of much of the New Testament is Hebraic. After all, Jesus was a Jew, not a Christian of Gentile origin. His teachings, like those of his followers, reflect a distinct ethnicity and culture. The evidence found in the New Testament is abundantly clear. As a mother gives birth to and nourishes a child, so Hebrew culture and language gave birth to and nourished Christianity. In Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul discusses the present and future of Jew and Gentile in the plan of God. His stress on justification by faith rather than the works of the law leads some scholars to argue that Paul sees the Jews and Torah as permanently set aside. But the Apostle himself says, By no means, Romans 11.1. 1. As Christer Stendhal rightly points out, Romans 9-11 through 11 is not an appendix to chapters 1-8, through 8, but the climax of the letter. In Romans 11, Paul warns that those who have come to faith out of Gentile backgrounds not to boast or become arrogant. They are, to, they are but wild olive branches grafted into the olive tree, allowed by God's goodness to share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Here Paul points to a unity between Israel, the tree, and the Gentile, the engraft branches. By drawing upon a horticultural metaphor familiar from the Old Testament. It is Hebraic through and through of Israel. It is Hebraic through and through. Of Israel, Jeremiah writes, The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form. Jeremiah 11.16 Also concerning Israel, Hosea states, 
His splendor will be like an olive tree. Hosea 14.6 David refers to himself by saying, I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. Psalm 52.8 Paul uses this symbol of the living and growing olive tree to show that the destinies of faithful Jews and Gentiles are inextricably bound together. Thus, the church, firmly planted in Hebraic soil, finds its true identity in the connection with Israel. The church is fed, sustained, and supported by this relationship. It is important at this point that we explore more fully the background and nature of this olive tree imagery. It depicts beautifully how Jew and Gentile relate to each other. The olive tree was well known in the Mediterranean world of New Testament times. The important place the olive has had in Rome's economy from Bible times until now is indicated by Italy's being the leading olive-growing country in the world today. Thus, it should not seem strange that the apostle, when writing to the church at Rome, would use the figure of the olive tree. To those from the Occident, west, the olive tree with its gnarled trunk and soft gray-green leaves does not appear to be an especially beautiful tree, but to those from the Orient, east, the olive tree has an artistic appearance that has been admired for ages. So it is quite clear why Paul, a Jew with Roman citizenship, Acts 22:25, selected the olive tree to illustrate a central theological point. Many readers of his letter to the church at Rome were Roman Jews who knew the olive well from both scripture and everyday life. Today, however, most people living in North America or in certain parts of Western Europe are far less acquainted with this remarkable tree of biblical times. So it is important that we emphasize some of its features. Olive trees were famous for their longevity, outliving most other fruit trees. Today, one may visit the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means, literally, olive press, on the Mount of Olives, and view a venerable grove of olive trees, many of which are hundreds of years old. Well did Moses describe Canaan as a land with olive oil, Deuteronomy 8.8. 8. The roots of the olive tree, Romans 11.18, are remarkably sturdy, thriving in the rocky soil and the hot, dry climate of the land. Very old olive trees have off, often have tender young shoots which spring up around the roots. This sight, doubt, doubt, this sight doubtless prompted the psalmist to speak of children being like olive shoot around the table of the home. Psalm 128, 3. Further insight into Paul's theological metaphor may be gained by recognizing that olive trees were prized for their fruitfulness, which usually lasted for centuries. The rich fruit was either eaten or used for the making of olive oil. Olive oil was considered a major source of wealth as early as the time of Solomon. See 1 Kings 5.11, 2 Chronicles 2.10, approximately 1,000 years before the time of Paul. Olive oil was used for cooking, for lamps, for ceremonial anointing, and for healing the sick. Olive wood was used for construction purposes, including part of the Solomonic Temple, 1 Kings 6, 23-33. Today, Bethlehem still attracts thousands of visitors each week to its olive wood factories and stores. Grafted into Israel Against the above background on the importance of the olive tree, we now return to Paul's figure of the olive root and branches. We shall focus on, the, on some of the significant details of Paul's teaching and their implications for us today. First, Paul depicts Gentiles as branches from a wild olive tree which have been grafted into a cultivated olive tree. Romans 11:17 and 24. Elsewhere, Paul describes Gentiles as those who were uncircumcised, excluded from the citizenship of Israel in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and far away. See Ephesians 2, 11-13. This terminology could not be more vivid, vivid in expressing God's mercy to the Gentiles. 
They were pagan idol worshippers. 1 Corinthians 12.2 Those who in and of themselves had little to offer. In contrast, being a Jew had an advantage. Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Romans 3.2 So the unusual type of engrafting portrayed here, taking that which was wild by nature and joining it in intimate association with choice cultivated stock, underscores the point that what is worthless, with nothing of which to boast, suddenly receives value through this new connection. The marvel of God's grace to those outside redemptive history here is illustrated. The Gentile, those who simply stand by faith, with no claim to human merit or superiority, are now infused with full life and vigor through the Jewish people. Second, one must accurately identify the root of the olive tree, Romans 11:16-18. Some have argued that the root represents the Messiah or the Messianic movement, but this view confuses the expression root of Jesse or root of David with the root of the olive tree. Isaiah 11:1 1, Revelation 5:5 5, 5. The flow of the context supports the conclusion that the root represents the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the faithful forefathers of the Jews, the stalwart founders of the that original people of God. It is they who possessed an enduring faith, never decayed or uprooted through the years of time. Through this faith-filled, deep-rooted Jewish channel, God promised that salvation and blessing would someday come to the Gentiles. In Paul's day, that time had fully come. Gentiles were now grafted into Israel, that mysterious remnant which walked in loving obedience with the living God. Third, one should note that the root brings support to the newly engrafted branches. Romans 11.18 The Greek term Paul uses here is bastazo, meaning bear, carry, lift up, support. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it is used of a person who bears a burden, Matthew 20.12, and of a beast which supports a person, Revelation 17.7. 7. In Luke 11.27, it refers to a womb which bears a child, suggesting the nuance of nourishment, life support, and that upon which one is utterly dependent. Indeed, a study of various contexts in which bestasso occurs shows that this verb implies the constant attitude of submission. This nuance then suggests the proper attitude required for the Gentile believer in regard to his place in the family of God, firmly supported by the fatness of the olive root, Israel. Gentiles have no room for a spirit of arrogance, pride, or self-sufficiency. Romans 11.20 They are dependent upon the Jews for their salvation and spiritual existence. Dan Johnston, Jan Johnson has effectively noted this relationship. From Paul's time until the present, the church has tended to view its existence independently of Israel. In Paul's view, any church which exists independently of Israel ceases therein to be the church as a part of God's salvation plan and becomes simply another religious society. The olive branch has long symbolized peace. Genesis 8.11 it is both ironic and tragic, however, that while the figure Paul uses in Romans 11 depicts the unity of two peoples, Jews and Gentiles, their relationship has proved historically to be the opposite. The church never seriously heeded Paul's warning to stand in awe, to be afraid, Romans 11.20. As we pointed out above, it was purely God's grace and mercy that brought the Gentile world into this olive tree connection with Israel, the faithful of God's ancient covenant people. Yet, as we will later see in more detail, as early as the middle of the second century, the church had arrogated to itself the very position of the olive tree. The story of this arrogant takeover with the severing of Jewish roots and the long history of anti jew Judaism to follow will be discussed in chapters 3 through 7 below. Like the church at Rome, 
we who are from Gentile stock must be ever reminded that neither does the nourishing sap, verse 17, of the olive tree bind its source in us, nor do we support the root of that same tree. Rather, Paul says the reverse is true. Israel is the root that supports you, verse 18. One may say that for a Gentile to have a right relation with God, he must humbly accept and appreciate a Jewish book, believe in a Jewish Lord, and be grafted in to a Jewish people. Therefore, taking on their likeness through a commonly shared stock. This initial chapter has sought to open up the larger context of Hebrew thought in the life of the church. But before drawing it to a close, we are driven back to Paul's poignant metaphor of the root and branches. In particular, such graphic imagery ought to give every Christian reason to pause and respond to this challenging question posed by Abraham Herschel. The vital issue for the church is to decide whether to look for roots in Judaism and consider itself an extension of Judaism or to look for roots in pagan Hellenism and consider itself an antithesis to Judaism. In brief, the central matter is our ability to come to grips with whether we who once were not his people and who have become his people only through his grace can learn nothing from those who have who from old have been his people